Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. You know, I recently got a complaint from my mom. You know, mom listens to the show. She said the stories we cover are always so alarming to her. And I mean, yeah, fascism is on the march. It, it isn't supposed to be fun. But um, I wanted to do a show, like a somewhat hopeful show. That, that was my goal this week. So um, we are going to do that. We're going to try to find some uh, silver linings in the dark storm clouds out there. Uh, we're going to talk to Billy Courier about his new book, um, detailing how a people-powered movement defeated a kind of proto-MAGA pre-Trump assault on North Carolina's judiciary. And that was part of a bigger uh, kind of takeover of a state. Um, and then we're going to talk to Daniel Nikanian. Uh, he's a founder of the Appeal Political Report. He's a savvy observer. We're going to talk about some primary wins for progressives that are being kind of buried under a lot of um, a lot of analysis about the supposed meaning of Eric Adams' win in the New York City mayor's race. Because there were a lot of primaries during that. You know, everybody's looking at the mayor's race. There's other primaries going on, and they sent some very different messages than we're getting. Uh, first, I want to make a couple of quick points about this very stupid and frivolous litigation that Donald Trump announced this week against Facebook and Twitter. In case you missed it, Trump held a press conference to announce his um, grifting operations slash PAC slash, I don't know, legal, whatever, is suing the companies to uh, hold them accountable for silencing conservative voices. Uh, the filing claims that these companies are um, state actors, or quasi-state actors, I guess, um, for reasons unknown to most of us, certainly unknown to constitutional experts. They're just like, yeah, they're big. They, they're state actors uh, and not private companies. And they're saying that they should therefore be governed by the First Amendment, right? The First Amendment constrains the government. It doesn't constrain, you know, a publisher or a social media company. But that's that's their claim. So... Two things have annoyed me about the ensuing coverage of this, and I guess the larger uh, conversation here. I'm not going to say discourse, but you know what I'm saying. The discourse. First, a, a lot of good people, like well-intentioned people, have accepted this ridiculous premise, the ridiculous premise of this debate. And this often happens. This often happens. Like, I'm seeing people argue that it is ludicrous to claim that social media's, uh, media companies are state actors, right? Which is correct. Or they'll argue that these companies have every right to limit uh, seditious content or uh, content that could incite violence or COVID disinformation or whatever to justify, to justify basically uh, what conservatives call censorship. Right. So they're they're taking this on the terms that the right wants to have the debate and not enough people, I think, are calling this out as the profoundly stupid conspiracy theory that it really is. Like the idea that Twitter and Facebook are hostile toward conservatives is bonkers, bonkers. And I, I have no problem believing that conservatives are moderated more often because they're more likely to violate the terms of service, right? And we could, you know, we could talk about, oh, maybe we should let people use ethnic slurs or whatever, or spread COVID disinformation or whatever. But that's not bias against conservatives, right? That's setting rules of, of, the, of the website, of the private company, and saying, we're not going to allow you to incite violence on this website. And then... You know, if you're a conservative, you get punished. And if you're a liberal, you get punished. But only the conservatives believe that it is because they are conservative. Now, more to the point, if you're on social media, then you are inundated with conservative voices. You're, you're seeing conservative voices all the time. I mean, my mentions on Twitter are full of wing nuttery. I don't follow these people. According to Pew, Republicans and Democrats use Facebook at a very similar rate, almost identical. I think it was like 69% of 
of Republicans are on Facebook and 72% of Democrats, something like that. Very, very similar. But every day, the top trafficking posts on Facebook are from hard right websites, right? They're always, the top traffic posts are always dominated by like Dan Bugino or whatever his name is and Ben Shapiro, like wing nuttery always trends on Twitter. If they're silencing conservatives, they're doing a shitty job of it. And then there's the boy who cried wolf issue. I mean, these people claim that absolutely everything is biased against them. Oh, the media are biased against them. Oh, these people are biased. Science is biased. I mean, there is a conservative Bible project for people who think Christianity is biased against conservatives. Right? So, like, that's context. And I also, and I guess this makes three things. The idea that social media companies are state actors is both ridiculous in theory and also unworkable in practice. If they can't moderate the content on their websites, you know what would happen? Those sites would quickly become like unusable hellholes. This happens, by the way, on all these, these conservative, they start these conservative social media alternatives to Twitter and they go, oh, we believe in free speech. Say whatever you want. And within like one day, they're like, oh, by the way, you can't say this and you can't say that. And, you know, people break out the gross porn and they start, it just becomes disgusting and nobody wants to be there. Nobody wants to use it. You know, if you can't moderate the content on their websites, those sites would just be, uh, nobody, nobody would use it. And why is that? Because the government can only prohibit like fighting words and a couple of other very narrow exceptions to the First Amendment. Most truly vile content, content that most of us would agree we don't want to see on social media. Most of us, conservatives would agree that, is protected speech from the government. It's not protected from Facebook. It's not protected from Twitter. It is protected from the government. So then the, the other thing that I find annoying, and I maybe this is four, I don't know, I've lost track. The other thing that I find annoying is that Donald Trump held this press conference, right? He got a lot of coverage, a lot of attention, and this lawsuit is not going anywhere. And everybody should know that, right? It is a gimmick. It is not a lawsuit. It is a stunt. If it isn't quickly dismissed by a judge, he will quietly forget about it. And how do I know that? I know that because he has pulled this same stunt dozens, if not hundreds of times during his career. Right? Going back years before he was in politics, he would do this. I'm going to sue this person, that person. He'd hold a press conference, get some stories in the press. Then because it's a silly, stupid lawsuit, he just kind of forgets about it and everybody else moves on. I mean, just recently, do you remember back in 2019, Trump's campaign made a big fuss over suing the New York Times over an opinion piece. And, oh, that, that was big in the news for a couple of days. What happened to that? Eh, nothing, nothing. They dropped it quietly because that's how they roll. But our political press, what do they have? A short memory and a real thirst for Trump content. He's great for traffic and he's great for ratings. And so everyone pretends this is a real issue with conservatives and the social media. And everyone pretends this is a real lawsuit that might be decided on its merits at a court in a dramatic trial or whatever. This is all bullshit. It's all bullshit. <laughs> it's all very stupid. Oh, God. Okay, so let's take a quick break and then look at some positive developments for a change. All right, next week we'll go back to you know, fascism on the march. But this week, we're going to look at some positive developments. Mom, positive developments. Remember that not everyone falls for this nonsense. Stay tuned. Can't stand the side of you. What gave you the right to do?
Welcome back. I'm joined now by Billy Courier. Billy has a new book that really fits the bill for this week's show. It's titled Usurpers, How Voters Stopped the Takeover of North Carolina's Courts. And it's uh, it's really about how um, ostensibly overmatched activists, seemingly overmatched activists and uh, pro-democracy, small-D democracy forces thwarted a sort of quasi-coup in North Carolina. It's an important story as we see uh, similar fights playing out in uh, red states across the country and, of course, in Washington, D.C. Billy, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thanks for having me, Joshua. Thanks for taking the time. Um, Your story basically starts in 2010. I think a lot of our national story does as well. That was the first midterm election after the election of a black man with a funny name. Mm-hmm. Uh, that began a kind of uh, panic among white conservatives that eventually helped drive Trump to an unlikely win and uh, I think continues to shape our politics and threaten our uh, pluralistic democracy. So let's let's set the stage. Uh, North Carolina, North Carolina was long seen, I think, as the most um, kind of moderate of the old Confederate states until 2010. Is that, is that right? No, I think that's right. I mean, um, we had, you know, if you, especially if you look at our election laws, we had some very liberal uh, election laws if you care, compared us to other states in the South. Um, we had a lot of early voting. We uh, had really flexible rules for how folks could cast their ballots. Um, and, of course, uh, a lot of that changed. We had, we had a really innovative public financing program for our judicial elections. Um, that has also been repealed since then. But I, I think, yeah, it, in 2010, when the Republicans took over, North Carolina was definitely one of the more moderate states in the South. You write, and I quote, the leaders of the North Carolina legislature had shown many of the same autocratic tendencies as Trump, voter suppression, policies that discriminate against people of color, blatant lies, attacking judges as illegitimate, and trying to disregard votes cast by Democrats due to false claims of election a voter fraud. So this is basically the framework that we would see taken nationally um, to a very explicit degree uh, just a few a few years later. Of course, your book focuses on uh, Republicans' attempt to hijack the judiciary because that's it's the judiciary that empowers the rest of it, the, the voter suppression, um, striking down or limiting social safety net programs, et, et cetera, et cetera. So um, tell us about that specifically. Well, the first thing that they did in 2013 was they got rid of the public financing program for judicial elections. Um, and that was a program that was very successful. It had allowed candidates who were running for uh, appellate courts to avoid raising large contributions. They could just raise a certain number of small contributions, and then they would get public financing. And we had Republican judges and Democratic judges participating uh, and supporting the program, but the legislature got rid of that. Um, so since then, we've had candidates relying on these large contributions. Um, and after that, uh, the, the next big thing that they tried to do was they actually tried to cancel the 2016 state Supreme Court election. Um, at the time, there was a 4-3 Republican majority on the state Supreme Court, and that majority was up for grabs in 2016. And so they basically tried to cancel the high court election by moving this to this quasi-appointment system. Uh, it's kind of complicated, but basically it would have it would have preserved a conservative majority for another two years, no matter what the voters decided. Um, but but that change was struck down. And then after that, they they really engaged in a series of power grabs uh, targeting the courts, including, you know, they made judicial elections partisan. They gerrymandered our uh, trial courts in Charlotte and some other cities. And they actually uh, they engaged in what I call it an, a court unpacking scheme where they shrank the size of our court of appeals to prevent the Democratic governor from making appointments uh, to that court. We've seen similar efforts um, in red state after red state. You know, we talk a lot about um, Democratic threats to pack courts. Um, but of course, Republican governors have done just that in both Arizona and Georgia. Um, so let's talk about the fight that ensued. The, that is the kind of theme of your book. And I hate reducing big social conflicts to like key figures, the, the great man analysis of history, right? But I actually think this particular story may justify it to a degree. 
who is Art Pope and what role did he play in all of this? <laughs> well, Art Pope is a uh, millionaire Republican campaign finance donor. Um, that's how I would describe him, but he's also a lot more than that. You know, he uh, is a guy who made his money uh, because he inherited his father's uh, retail store empire and they run a, a series of uh, discount store chains uh, throughout North Carolina and, and neighboring states. And he's used the money that he's made from that to really influence North Carolina politics from the ground up. Uh, not only has he given a lot of money to Republican candidates, but he's fund funded think tanks, uh, these conservative news websites in North Carolina. Um, all he, he pays all of these folks to try to influence public policy in North Carolina. And then on top of that, he gives a lot of money to Republican legislators to, you know, get them to um, implement those policies that he pushes. And for a short time after the Republicans took over the legislature, he was the governor's, uh, Governor Pat McCrory's budget director. So he was really in charge of introducing the governor's budget that cut a lot of spending, including on the public financing program for judicial elections that I was talking about earlier. Yeah, and I just, you know, I really want listeners to understand what this guy did. So he this very, very wealthy guy. He donates to everybody. So funds everybody's campaigns. These are like-minded individuals. Remember, you had moderates in that legislature beforehand. Remember the beginning of this conversation, we talked about North Carolina being among the most moderate of the former Confederate states. He pumped all this money into um, legislatures, le legislator campaigns, um, by like-minded individuals who understood that they uh, they were to suppress the vote, et cetera, et cetera. He funded media organizations to promote this. Then he ended up in government writing the budget. And a budget is a, <clears throat> reflects moral values, right? It reflects priorities. So this guy inserted himself just deeply into the entire state of North Carolina, basically took over the state almost single-handedly. And there's a great article, if, if listeners want to understand more about that aspect of this story. Um, Jane Meyer, the great journalist, did a piece way back 10 years ago or so called State for Sale at New Yorker, and you should check that out. It's, a, it's about Art Pope. So on the other side, again, uh, of this kind of conflict where you have very prominent figures, you have uh, the Reverend William Barber, who was clearly the spiritual leader of the resistance. Tell us about the role he played. No, that's absolutely true. Um, Reverend Barber at the time was the head of the North Carolina NAACP. And uh, he took over that role, I think, in the early 2000s. And he was part of the coalition that had pushed uh, the legislature, you know, which was controlled by Democrats back then, to uh, really broaden access to voting he had pushed for like a series of good government policies. Um, and when the Republican legislature took over, uh, he sort of found himself leading this massive coalition. They called it the Moral Mondays movement because they would meet at the legislature every Monday when the legislature was in session to protest, to make themselves heard in the galleries. Um, and it was so important to have that movement. I mean, not only were, you know, would we see thousands of people converging on the Capitol, um, but I think that was really an outlet for people who were so frustrated to see what this legislature was doing, but they felt powerless because of the gerrymandered elections. You know, it was nearly impossible for voters to do anything about these extreme policies that our legislature was pushing. Um, but Reverend Barber's movement really gave a voice to those folks. And it let the legislature know that even if we couldn't vote them out because of their gerrymandering, they were still going to have to face the voters and they were still going to be held accountable for the immoral decisions that they were making. So yeah. he was really he was really crucial and and uh, you know leading the fight for voting rights to stop the voter suppression at the beginning and then when the fight sort of shifted to uh, the legislature taking over the courts his movement really sort of took the lead uh, in terms of just the sheer numbers of people opposing those power grabs so it was really a crucial um, a crucial component of how we were able to defeat a lot of these power grabs was Reverend Barber and just his. Uh, you know, his kind of moral clarity uh, when he's out there speaking to the protesters, it really, um, it's really powerful. Yeah. Um, our producer, by the way, David Edwards, has wanted me to book um, Reverend Barber on the show for a 
a long time, but he's hard to schedule. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get him sometime, folks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I, I'm gonna get him sometime. Trust me. <laughs> um, so you have this conflict between a well-funded kind of neo-fascist movement. I'm, I'm gonna say it, even if you won't. I don't know. And a multiracial grassroots movement, and it continued between 2010 and really 2018 when the the coup at least was ultimately defeated at least for a while and this was done with a kind of all hands inside outside strategy so you had the moral monday movement outside and then you had these efforts from uh lawyers uh democratic legislators even though they were in the minority uh this is like a third of your book but maybe you could give us like just a bird's eye view of how that worked with the inside outside Sure. Well, um, I mean, I think if you look at Reverend Barber, he was leading the NAACP. And in, in addition to leading these protests, his organization was suing the legislature repeatedly um, over their voter suppression. So uh, and he would go out there on the campaign trail and talk about the state constitutional right to vote and how that was being violated. So he kind of kept the law and the state constitution at the center of a lot of his rhetoric. Um, so while he would be protesting, you know, uh, his organization's lawyers would be in a courtroom, um, really kind of methodically showing how lawmakers were targeting black voters uh, with a lot of these bills. Um, and, you know, a lot of these power grabs were struck down by the courts because of a lot of that legal action. Um, you know, we had federal courts striking down a 2013 voter ID law and also uh, undoing some of the racial gerrymandering that we saw uh, when this Republican legislature took over 10 years ago. And how was this kind of long battle, at least the battle, I don't know about the war, finally won? How did this end? Well, I think it all kind of came to a head in 2018. Um, and in 2018, the legislature had this, uh, they had a new idea to pack the state Supreme Court, right? Uh, the state Supreme Court had blocked their attempts to take over elections and uh, you know, there was a chance they were going to block their new voter ID law. And so they put this constitutional amendment on the ballot in 2018 that would have basically given the legislature control over filling vacant seats on the courts. Uh, right now, the governor has that authority, uh, you know, in just about every state, I think, to fill vacant seats when they come up. But they wanted to take that authority from the governor. And their idea was, you know, if there was a Republican incumbent on the ballot in 2018, and if that incumbent was reelected and this amendment passed, they would be able to pack the court just like they had talked about doing in 2016, um, because, you know, this amendment would give them power to fill these new seats that they were going to create. Um, and at the same time, you had this fight over this constitutional amendment and this court packing scheme. Uh, there was a voting rights lawyer named Anita Earls who was running for a seat on the state Supreme Court. And Anita Earls had sued the legislature several times over uh, racial gerrymandering, uh, the voter ID bill. Uh, she was really involved with, uh, you know, most of the litigation over voter suppression. And in 2018, she had sort of witnessed what was happening to the federal courts. And she realized that, you know, Trump and Mitch McConnell were changing the federal court so that they weren't going to be protecting voting rights anymore. And she decided that the best way for her to continue protecting voting rights was to run for a seat on the state Supreme Court. Because um, if she won, you know, she would be serving on a court that had the power to strike down a lot of these voter suppression laws. Right. And the legislature, of course, didn't like that idea. Um, so they tried everything they could to kind of keep her off the ballot. They, they passed two different laws that moved her name to the very bottom of the ballot. Um, they also, there were, she was running against two Republicans and they tried to kick one of the Republicans out of the election after it had already started, which you can't do. Um, <laughs> so brazen. So they, they really tried everything they could. They, they tried everything they could in 2018 to uh, implement this final court packing plan. And the reason that they sort of had this ticking clock hanging over them because they had had to undo a lot of their gerrymandering uh, because of the courts. And so they knew that there was a chance that in 2018, they were going to lose some of their seats. And if they did that, they weren't going to have the power to override the governor's veto anymore. Right. Um, so they had this kind of ticking clock, and this was kind of their last chance before they lost their, their veto-proof supermajority to take over the courts. And, and that's kind of the, where the story culminates. 
Let me ask you this. Um, we're currently seeing a bunch of um, very transphobic, discriminatory bills um, passing or at least being considered by red state legislatures focusing on um, transgender athletes. But back in 2016 or 2017, I don't remember the exact year, um, North Carolina passed this bathroom bill. And it led to really a national backlash. There was um, an Associated Press analysis found that the the state had lost, oh God, I think it was like $4 billion in business. So, you know, Republicans were saying, oh, this isn't going to hurt the economy and all these companies are canceling things. To what degree, if at all, did that kind of focus national attention on this and, and put some pressure on the, on the legislature or at least let them know that they were being watched. I mean, was that did yeah. that play a role in all of this? I think it did for sure. Uh, I mean, that was one of the most high profile uh, issues. Uh, you know, one of the most high profile bills that they passed for sure was HB two, the bathroom bill. Um, and I think, you know, at the time, uh, the uh, North North Carolina is very associated with the sport of college basketball. Yes, and the Atlantic coast conference was going to have their tournament, the ACC tournament in North Carolina that year. And they pulled it out. Uh, and folks were very upset about that. Um, and I think we saw at that point had just exactly how insulated from political pressure the legislature was because they just didn't care. Um, you know, that we were losing out on all this tourism revenue, tax dollars, and that people were so outraged that they were, and, you know, the fact that they were putting these transgender people at risk, really. Um, but they just didn't care about all that because they didn't have to worry about how unpopular this bill was. They didn't have to worry about how unpopular their decisions were. Um, but I think what, when they saw that fierce backlash, that was, that was really crucial. And they eventually sort of backed down and they repealed the worst parts of HB2, but they didn't allow that stuff to go into effect for a couple of years. But now... Uh, it's it, the the worst parts of HB two are now off the books, and we've had several local governments passing civil rights laws that protect transgender people and all LGBTQ people um, because they've gotten rid of HB two. Yeah. Now um, you were working in <clears throat> sorry you were working in DC for the Center for American Progress. You went back to North Carolina to join this fight, right? Um, the parallels with what we're dealing with nationally are pretty clear. Uh, and in states like Texas, where uh, Democrats recently thwarted an attempt to pass a very restrictive voting bill, uh, which, by the way, Governor Abbott will try to pass again in a special session. The, the commonalities here, again, pretty clear. It's all motivated by the belief, which I think is a dangerous myth that demographic change is making it impossible for Republicans to compete on an even playing field. It's all being fueled by dark money and um, the rights sprawling alternative information infrastructure. Are there things that make North Carolina's situation unique or at least different from say Texas? Well, I mean, um, I, I mean, I think the, the biggest difference is that we have a, you know, obviously we have a democratic governor right now and, we have, for the moment, we have a slim uh, Democratic majority on our state Supreme Court. So the legislature isn't, for the last couple of years, hasn't had the same kind of latitude that the legislature in Texas has. Yeah. Um, but I think the parallels are so clear. To me, you know, uh, these bills that we've seen out of North Carolina are the template for so many of these bills. Uh, the 2013 North Carolina voter suppression law that I talked about earlier it included voter ID mandate, uh, cuts to early voting, the end of election day registration, the end of pre-registration for teenagers uh, where they could sign up when they were 17 before they turned 18 to vote. All these different provisions, all of which made it harder to vote and several of which really singled out uh, black voters. Um, and I think, you know, before that, we didn't see a lot of these uh kind of omnibus voter suppression bills that had all this stuff in it. We would see a voter ID bill, but it wouldn't have all this other stuff in it. Now it's just kind of the, the modus operandi for these Republican legislators. They just throw every voter suppression measure they can find in a bill. Um, and, you know, one other parallel that we see in a state like Texas, uh, they, they've learned from North Carolina that 
they can pass these voter suppression bills, but they might be struck down by the courts. So not only are they emulating North Carolina in you know, suppressing the voters there, now they're borrowing from North Carolina's playbook when it comes to attacking the courts. Uh, in Texas this year, they've looked at creating a new appellate court that would be elected statewide. Right now, their appellate courts are elected locally, and they have several appellate courts. Um, but they don't like the appellate court in Austin because it's liberal, so they want to have a new statewide appellate court. Um, and you're seeing that in other states, too, uh, around the country where they're passing voter ID bills and all these other voter suppression bills, and they're also trying to manipulate the courts just like they did in North Carolina. So I'm trying to do a positive show here. What about the other side of the equation? Are you seeing um, people taking lessons from the resistance in North Carolina? Well, I hope so. You know, I mean, uh, if you listen to Reverend Barber talking about what's happening in uh, across the country, he often uh, will refer to the victories that we've had here in North Carolina for sure. Um, I mean, if you look at, you know, in, in 2018, our voters rejected this court packing scheme and they elected Anita Earls to the state Supreme Court. And, um, and soon after that election in 2019, we had a six Democrat, one Republican state Supreme Court. And that was huge um, because we, we saw a series of rulings in 2019 and 2020 that uh, protected voting rights from our state courts. We, uh, we saw the state courts crack down on gerrymandering by our state legislature. They forced them to redraw the districts again. Uh, they struck, they, they ruled that uh, people with felony convictions didn't have to pay fines and fees before they got their voting rights restored. Um, and they also blocked a new voter ID law that was passed by our legislature in 2018. Uh, so we saw a series of victories uh, in North Carolina that were only possible because voters stopped these power grabs that were targeting the courts. And on a national basis, we have seen a new awareness of the importance of the courts on the broad left um, with new resources coming online. Sorry, my dog is unhappy okay. about all of this packing and anti-majoritarian rule. She's letting us know that's just not cool. Um, and uh, new organizations are uh, being formed that are fighting to rebalance the courts. And we've, we've talked to some of the people from those organizations. I'm going to have somebody on in the coming weeks from a new one, actually. Uh, one last question. We've been raising the alarm on the show since, well, since the show launched, basically. Do you think that those of us who are rightly alarmed by the rise of this illiberal uh, right-wing movement, do we need to be careful to not give people a sense of hopelessness? Like, the, this is the way I think about it. When you look at other countries that have slid into authoritarianism, they generally had a a weak opposition. And the Democrats, you know, I they're often feckless. They can be frustrating, but it's not like they are poorly funded. It's not like they don't have a lot of popular support. Um, the, the right has packed the courts, but there are a lot of fair jurists in the judiciary, in the American judiciary, including many who were appointed by Republicans in an earlier era. I don't know about the Trump judges, but um, the media may bend over backwards to both sides us to death sometimes, but they absolutely get their backs up when their independence is threatened. Um, they did a good job of calling out the insurrection at the Capitol as an insurrection. They didn't sugarcoat that. How should we balance the need to, um, to like I said, to raise the alarm without demoralizing people or giving them yeah. the sense that our dem democracy is in like a death spiral? Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a tough question. And in any time you're writing about or talking about voter suppression, I think you run that problem. But, um, you know, what I try to do is just emphasize uh, the good news, you know, whenever, whenever, whenever we can kind of grab onto that. I think you're right that there are uh, a lot of Republican judges out there who want to do the right thing. I think the big problem, especially if you look at the federal system, are the um, kind of structural advantages that Republicans have. Yeah. And I, I think that makes people feel uh, I think that's a big source of people's discouragement. The fact that, you know, everything has to go through the Senate and the Senate just inherently favors Republicans. Yeah. Um, 
But I think if you look at what's happening at the state level and the local level in so many places, uh, there's a lot of signs of uh, progress there. And there's a lot of reason for encouragement, I think. Um, there are a lot of states right now that are passing laws that broaden access to voting right now. Uh, Virginia just passed a state level voting rights act um, that I think is, uh, you know, sorely needed uh, in, in the kind of thing that's sorely needed in a lot of states in the South. So there are signs out there that, um, you know, that, that democracy can win whenever voters are motivated to protect it. And I think that's, that's the lesson that I take away from North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we have seen in various ways and in various places and to various degrees, backlashes against this backlash politics of the right, where people are motivated to jump through sometimes extreme hoops to get their vote counted. Um, you know, there is a, a, a sense that um, democracy is under threat. And I think you just you need to have not the entire population motivated to fight this thing. But if you have a, a, a motivated group of people who understand the threat and and uh, work together, uh, we can beat back a lot of this stuff. Folks, check out Billy's book again. It's titled Usurpers, How Voters Stop the Takeover of North Carolina's Courts. Billy Courier, I want to thank you so much for fighting the good fight and for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then be right back with Daniel Nikesian. And we are back. I am still Joshua Holland. I'm joined now by Daniel Nikanian. Daniel is the founder of the Appeal Political Report, which uh, looks at local politics with a focus on criminal justice issues. He's a very savvy observer. Uh, Daniel, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. I wanted to have you on to help me push back against some notably lazy punditry and also talk about some important progressive wins in recent Democratic primaries, especially Democratic primaries that are basically the election, because, you know, they're going to win. Whoever wins a primary is going to win, in all likelihood, the general election. Um, since Eric Adams' slim victory in the Democratic primary for the New York City mayor's race, which, by the way, got just a, a ton of coverage because all reporters live in New York or D.C., uh, there's been a gusher of um, hot takes about how this um, former police officer who ostensibly ran as a moderate shows that progressives have to run away from criminal justice reform. It shows that voters are scared of what is 
commonly referred to as simply as rising crime, which is actually an increase in gun violence specifically, and that progressives have failed to win over voters of color as if progressives and voters of color are two separate and mutually exclusive categories. <laughs> so that's been, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this, right? Yes, yes. I know there's a lot to unpack there. What do you think about that narrative or those narratives? That's a great place to start because what, one thing that's been that's been remarkable to watch over the past in the month, but also the past, frankly, the past year, uh, certainly since November, has been this expectation set prior to so many elections that the criminal justice reform camp is on the ropes. And yes. um, and and there's a wave of coverage uh, in the run up to an election a bunch of times. Um, and we saw that really in the Philadelphia DA election in May and to a lesser extent in the special election for Congress happening in New Mexico, um, either end of May or beginning of June. Uh, and there, there were so many uh, takes, so many articles at the national level about how these elections were going to reveal that that um, that the criminal justice reform that argument that the case for changing borders to policing has has, has is, is was really on the ropes, and 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 in those elections the the reform candidates the the, the democratic candidates which depending on the configuration won won by a lot. And that was kind of the end of the conversation, and and then the the, the train, the narrative moved to New York City, where there were a number of elections on on the ballot. The mayor's race, there was a DA election that was very important. There were there were council elections, all of which featured criminal justice uh, as a as a major as a major part of the conversation. Yes. Eric Adams' win is obviously an extremely important part of trying to understand where voters are, what types of argument are, are, are winning. That is, is not to deny that. But the way in which the, the conversation has so exclusively focused on Eric Adams and the mayoral race to the exclusion, not just of what else happened on the ballot in New York City that day, but also Philly and New Mexico, um, is, is a bit disappointing because it doesn't give you a full picture of how voters are reacting to this argument and and how the conversation has changed so much in 22 and 21 in favor of the reform side in favor of the, of the progressive side as compared to even a few years ago yeah i mean it's um it's interesting because the pundits never face any uh, consequences or reckoning for when they get everything wrong if you look at the new mexico election that was one where um they said oh here's a special election it's the first under biden and it's going to be all about defunding the police and you're you can expect um the progressive candidate to lose and they or at least a tight race and it was a blowout win and then you go on as you say and you get the same narrative the next time around meanwhile um adams is going to have is it fair to say that adams is going to have the most progressive city council in recent memory um i i think progressive made is significant gains to build on the gains they had made already four yes. years ago. So I, I, I'm not sure I have the historical analysis to say yes to what you said, but yes, there's definitely going to be a move, a move to the left for the council. And there are always a lot of talk of like media bias. I think one very real bias, a lot of that is, is bullshit, but one very real bias is a bias towards centrism for lack of a better word. The, the press tends to value centrism for eh, complex reasons that we don't need to get into. So you get one inherently local mayoral primary in New York, and that's supposed to offer all of these broad lessons for Democrats. But then when progressives win, well, we, we don't even hear much about it nationally. And when we do hear about those wins, they are not portrayed as roadmaps for the Democratic Party to follow elsewhere. You know, it's it's really interesting. I mean, one one uh, challenge uh, for making sense of what's going on locally, right, is that it's hard to even know what the official what what these offices are for. So I was I, I mentioned a few times the DA election in New York, in Manhattan, and in Philly. Like it, the the idea that those elections would fit in the national conversation around what is happening locally, what's happening politically, is 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 a recent one. Is one that has been driven by progressive to a great extent over the past few years. The fact that we even have having those conversations, the fact that Larry Krasner, which is the Philly the Philly DA, was even there in the national conversation, even if it's as a foil, already testifies to how much things have changed over the past four years. That that there is that that there that there are officials, candidates who are running on such different 
progressive ideas and and and, pl- and platforms has changed the game a bit in terms of what's happening uh, in in those offices. Yeah, I think so. But I also just take issue with the basic premise that we can extrapolate too much from an inherently mm-hmm. local race. For example, like mm-hmm. okay, we had the New York mayoral race. It is an off. Uh, it is an odd numbered year. It is a primary. These are inherently low turnout affairs, um, you know, relative to a presidential election. It was ranked choice voting. I think that there were some very flawed candidates. I was not, I don't live in New York City, I should say, but I'm, I'm from New York City. I've spent most of my life living there and I live very close by. So I was invested in it. Um, there were no, no candidates blew me away out of that field. I did mm-hmm. not think any of them were like, oh, I, I'm really excited about this person. I mean, Adams was certainly not my even fifth choice, but okay. Um, it was there was a, it was a specific to that field. And then the other problem that I have, Daniel, and I always have this problem, is that voters don't say, "I'm going to vote for the progressive," "I'm going to vote for the moderate." That's not the way they think. Most voters, some of us do. Um, they are vote. They are looking at the candidates who, um, you know, they're looking at their performance in debates. They may look at their certain issues, some of them, um, their retail politics comes into it where you, you know, you see people go and meet these candidates, et cetera, et cetera. People vote for candidates. They don't vote for categories. They don't say, I'm going to vote for the, you know, the, I want someone who's a little bit, I like this person, but I, I want somebody who's a little more centrist. The only, the only reason to the degree that they, that ideology per se comes into it, it's because they feel like, one candidate it may be more electable in a general election. So in a primary, they may say, okay, I want the moderate, but it's not because they have this love of, of people who have a, a label, the moderate label, it's because they think that they'll, they'll win. Anyway, let's talk about um, a couple of races. Um, you wrote about, I'm, I'm going to focus on the ones that you wrote about so that, you know, we stay, stay where you're like deep. Um, you, you wrote a consequential uh, about a consequential Democratic primary down in Virginia, mm. um, a prosecutor's office in Norfolk, Virginia. Like New York, the winner of the primary is going to win the general. Norfolk was the center of a big fight over criminal justice mm. reform going back several years. Uh, tell us about that race. Oh, yeah. Um, very, very interesting race, maybe less so because of the size of the jurisdiction in and of itself, because uh, we're not talking about a necessarily a very, a very large place than then, then the symbol of what's happened in the past few years in, in Virginia. So um, a few years ago in, in Norfolk, Virginia, the, the, the prosecutor, they're called... Uh, Commonwealth attorneys in, in Virginia to the, the the prosecutor announced he was no longer going to prosecute marijuana cases. This was back uh, a couple of years ago. In the meantime, a lot has happened in Virginia, including the Democratic takeover of the state government in 2019, after which Democrats have legalized mar- legalized marijuana since Virginia has changed so rapidly. But back just a couple of years ago, the idea that a prosecutor would say, I will no longer prosecute marijuana cases because of the harm that those pro- prosecutions are doing locally was a huge deal. And there was a kind of a fight at the time between other institutions locally, specifically judges who refused to allow the prosecutor to drop these cases and the prosecutor's office. Uh, in this, in, you know, it's, it's a very new development that the prosecutor's office would be on the more progressive side of the debate locally. Usually that is not how it happens. Yes. And this year there was an o- open race for prosecutor and some, uh, and definitely some, and definitely debates within the, within the primary about, about how much the prosecutor should take ownership of the policy decisions that they're making and how, 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 and take responsibility for the harm that they're doing by prosecuting, by prosecuting certain things that should not be part of the criminal legal system. Um, and the candidate who won, uh, was defending uh, a reform approach there. And, um, the reason I said it's symbolic beyond even the city, the, the city itself is that Virginia, perhaps more than any other state in the country for the past few years has seen a wave of progressives win prosecutors elections so much so that they've created a block uh they've they have they have they have they have created a coalition an organization of progressives that has that over the past six months went to 
Richmond, uh, where lawmakers met and advocated for progressive reforms like abolishing the death penalty or like abolishing mandatory minimums. That's such a new idea that an association of prosecutors would emerge as prosecutors defending progressive policies. And it did play a big role in Richmond in allowing some of these bills to go through in a party, the, the Virginia Democratic Party had a lot, a lot of proponents of the death penalty, for instance. The fact that it's still abolished the death penalty this year is a huge deal and a huge win for progressives. We did a show last year about how the institutional culture of prosecutors' offices specifically is deeply ingrained, deeply embedded, and it's difficult for people who are progressive-minded, kind of. Absolutely. To um, make any hayway, uh, leeway, uh, make any hay within those institutions because of that that overarching institutional culture that's very tough on crime, very hawkish on crime, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so back in New York City, mm-hmm. Adams will have this progressive city council and also Alvin Bragg mm. as a new Manhattan DA. Bragg will be taking over for Cy Vance. Um, Vance has gotten a lot of national publicity with his prosecution of the Trump organization and Trump's longtime um, CFO, I think he is. But he has also long been famously, like people who follow this stuff, Vance has been famously soft on crimes committed by wealthy and influential New Yorkers. And Bragg is also engaged. He ran very central to his campaign was the debate over stop and frisk and kind of Mm -hmm. broken windows policing. Um, uh, Talk to us a little bit about what that win is about. Yeah, um, that that was a very interesting race uh, because, first of all, it was very crowded. It was a very crowded field and they were depending on how you count, let's say four candidates who really were trying to stake the claim to the progressive title, including three candidates who I think all of which, if they had won, would have been possibly the most progressive DA in the entire country. The fact that there were so many candidates kind of trying to jostle for that title and really, really progressive position of criminal justice is including uh, someone who was a civil rights attorney, someone who was a, a, a... a defense attorney and were really coming as outsiders to the system just the whole conversation had shifted so much compared to what we would have expected four to eight years ago when it comes to the harms of the criminal legal system the harms of drug prosecutions um the harms of very long sentences and how it's, it's not improving safety just the, the whole conversation was was very different and there was this sense on the left in new york that there was going to be a, a fractured field and yes. that all of the the progressive candidates were, were going to split the field effectively. In, in endorsements uh, by groups like the Working Families Party um, and people who are kind of are known as progressive, in, in, influential progressives in New York were going in different directions. Um, and uh, so uh, Bragg, uh, who won, as you mentioned, um, what did, what was not, the on the one hand, didn't have the most progressive platform in the eight-person field, but on many issues was uh, pushing for greater reforms when it comes to uh, diminishing the scope of what the NYPD is asked to do when it comes to not prosecuting at all certain low-level offenses, when it comes to trying to have a conversation about how these extremely long sentences that are extremely common around the country, but in New York specifically as well, and um, are not actually have no, nothing to do with improving with improving safety. Yes. Well, uh, uh, one example of a policy that, that Bragg promised is that he would not seek life without parole sentences, um, which, you know, are very uncommon in in other parts of the world, but obviously are, are, are good, good are, are very common in the US. Yes. And, um, and that and that happened on the same day as the Adams win, right? And on the same day as council wins for candidates who did who, who did speak about uh, lowering the police budget or did at least speak about trying to take some of the functions of the NYPD and putting them elsewhere. Um, so that definitely a complex a complex result with a lot of different pieces to work through in the new yes. elections. Yeah, I mean, but it really puts a it puts a dent in the overarching narrative about Adams win and what it means. So um, you mentioned 
Larry Krasner. So all of hmm. this follows wins back in May for uh, Philadelphia's kind of crusading reform-minded district attorney and also a bunch of reform-minded judicial candidates. Yes. And I want to just point listeners, Daniel wrote about that for the appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's titled Wins for Larry Krasner and New Allies Signal Reformers Growing Reach. Mm. Uh, we don't have time to get into that in more detail. That was back in May anyway. Um, but listeners should check it out. Maybe one of the most surprising progressive primary wins for me personally was that of India Walton in Buffalo. She was a, a woman of color, DSA endorsed candidate. She's a self-identified socialist. And um, let's listen to just a second or two of her responding to a question about that, about being a socialist. Are yourself a socialist? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the, the entire intent of this campaign is to draw down power and resources to the ground level and, and to the hands of the people. And when we think about socialism, um, you know, we're perfectly fine with socialism for the rich. Uh, we will bail out Wall Street and banks and give a billion dollars in tax incentives to one of the richest people in the world to build an empty Tesla factory in South Buffalo. And when it comes to providing the resources that working families need to thrive, uh, socialism becomes scary at that point. So I'm, I'm very proud to be a democratic socialist. I am proud to have the support of Buffalo DSA and National DSA. Now, I say this is especially surprising for me because when I was in high school, I schlepped up to Buffalo to do clinic defense after the then mayor, and I don't remember his name, invited Operation Rescue, which was this radical anti-choice group, to come to Buffalo to shut down its abortion clinics. The mayor invited them, right? And frankly, we faced a lot of hostility from everyone we encountered up there. And I don't know how Buffalo voted uh, in the last presidential election, but I do know that the the rural and suburban areas up there are very, very Trumpified. I've done some scuba diving up there, and wow, it's like Trump City. So uh, I'm just wondering about your take on that race. And uh, on the incumbent mayor, Byron Brown, who is an establishment Democrat, uh, running a write-in campaign, being kind of like a sore loser. Right. I mean, it's been a fascinating election, again, because it came on the same day as the New York City election. And uh, the, there as well, the the questions about the scope of p- policing played a big role, actually, in the uh, campaign that that was being that the, that that was being run by uh, in your w- Walton in, um, in 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 Buffalo. I have, I have a quote in front of me where she says, to have that have a police presence without taking into account what other support could have been utilized is really traumatizing. I mean, the 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 language of the kind of harms that the current system is doing to people is is been at the center of of that of that election in uh, in Buffalo in a way that really is at the core of what Adams was sort of trying to push against this idea that there's too much that that is being asked. Uh, of the police, um, I it's uh, it's an excellent question as to what will happen next. Uh, the the mayor there is as as you just said going to do a write-in campaign. There are questions that may have been resolved, but I, I I'm not not sure what the latest is in the past few days about whether the Republican Party there will uh, endorse endorse his reelection bid. Um, Buffalo is a, a democratic city, so definitely not not going to be an easy route for the incumbent to take. Um, and but I mean, you know, it, it, it speaks to the battles, to the extent of the of the battle being waged right now within the Democratic Party, especially in places like like especially in places like like Buffalo, like Philly, that really where the where the fight really is within the primary system, yes. uh, because it, or at least between the. Democrats, and there's that's also what's given so much fuel to so many different movements over the past few years. That the, there's so many low hang, hang, low hanging fruits in these very blue spaces in terms yes. of what actually hasn't been done on criminal justice, but also on so many other things on 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 healthcare access, on on housing. There's so many demands being being made to these very blue places that people kind of gloss over because they assume they're already progressive. But in fact, the what is actually being done by these governments is often not that progressive. Then there's so much room for uh, for demands and, and for change. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely well said. Daniel Nikani, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I really do appreciate it. Oh, it's it's great to talk to you. 
I'd also like to thank Billy Courier and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I'd like to thank the good folks at Raw Story and Alternate for supporting the show. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you good people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Between you and me, I could honestly say the things could only get